Welcome, welcome, welcome to Illyria. Okay, and you guys watch She's the Man? Fantastic movie, by the way. Anyway, uh, we're talking about the idea of apologetics. If you grew up in a church like I did, I was told this idea when I was very young, that if God wanted to prove his existence, then he uh, would give us that evidence, but he wants us to have faith, particularly blind faith. In the New Testament, it says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so I was told again and again that the true Christian doesn't ask questions of evidence. The true Christian doesn't ask questions of proof, doesn't ask questions of veracity and historicity of the scriptures. A true Christian takes it all on blind faith. Uh, the, the issue with that is if you actually ask the Bible, are we supposed to have blind faith? It would give you a resounding negation. It would say, absolutely not. Uh, I remember growing up in church and asking my youth pastor, hey, um, we got evolution. We're being taught evolution in school. What do you think about, how does the Bible rectify itself with that? Uh, hey, if God is so good, if, if God is all powerful and he's all loving and he can see all things, why doesn't he stop the evil in this world? And my youth pastor, God bless his soul, um, was like, you know what, Chris? God wants us to have blind faith. Let's play dodgeball and chubby bunny and let's never talk about that topic ever again. And it, again, right, like I've got five kids and so when my kids fight, we live on this farm out in Bonzel, California in North County, um, and we've got, like, video cameras everywhere, okay? Just because, I don't know. I grew up in Oklahoma. It's kind of fun, you know? Like, you gotta, sometimes we hunt squirrels. It is what it is, okay? Sorry. Uh, if you're, like, into PETA, I'm not here to offend you. I'm just, I, I love me a good hunting sesh, okay? Um, and so we've, so, like, my son Brady and, and Peyton will come up, and they'll be like, he hit me, and then the other one will go, no, he hit me. Oh, he started it. No, he started it. And every time I go, all right, guys, that's it. I'm going to go check the video. I always get the truth immediately, right? Because they know the rule in my house is if you lie to me, your punishment is doubled. <coughs> you don't want to do that. So all of a sudden when I say, let's check the evidence, let's check the video, one of them's going to go, well, maybe I started it. It was probably me. Now that I think about it, now that I'm processing, right? It's like, bro, you're four. Where did you learn the word processing? But... And, and that's kind of how I thought about the Bible. When you ask Christian people for evidence, they went, I don't know. And when you asked your secular teachers at school, they would go, well, let me give you the evidence. And so when you have one side saying, don't ask dumb questions, don't ask questions, you're, this is above your pay grade, and the other one going, let me give you answers, we know which one's telling the truth. So I was just pot convinced that the secularistic, naturalistic, methodological naturalism mindset, everything's provable, the material world is all that there is, there is no God, that was what the truth of the world was. Then I started reading atheistic literature, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, uh, Christopher Hitchens, and when I would finish all of their texts, I would read their books and I would devour them because I thought these guys are going to have the solution. They're going to have this real, this like, um, robust explanation for the curiosities of the universe. They just weren't. They were empty. They were void. They were pointless. They weren't really answering the questions that I was asking. And then I was introduced for the first time to Christian apologists. William Lane Craig, R.C. Sproul, Norman Geisler, D.A. Carson. And I went, wait, where have these guys been all my life? For someone, if you're built like me, you're more left brain, but you're skeptical of everything, right? When someone comes up to you and you're like, my friend was healed, you're like, no, they weren't. How do you know that wasn't something random? 
Did you know that there was a study done that the people who were prayed for and the people who weren't prayed for were healed at the exact same rate? What if, it, what if the scan was actually wrong and it wasn't actually healing? How many of you guys are built like me in that? Where you, just, you start by being skeptical of everything, right? You just don't, you don't take anything unless you give me evidence for it. And so I started doing that with Christianity. I started saying, prove it. Where's the evidence? Christianity really asks you to take a leap of faith for sure. But it also asks you to run the ramp of reason before you take that leap of faith. There is no world you can possibly ascribe to that doesn't take a leap of faith. Science is a massive leap of faith. Uh, Christianity is a massive leap of faith. The question is, what ramp of reason do you run before you take that leap? So that's going to kind of be the conversation that we're going to have today. What is, what is the evidence? How do we know that this is true? How do we back the idea of Christianity? How do we rectify these different ideas? And I can assure you of one thing. There is a great, phenomenal, biblically-based answer for all of your questions, even if you don't know them. So, uh, with that, I open up the floor to Q. Oh, okay. Take your time, ma'am, in the front. Yeah, we're here. She's been waiting all night for this. Uh, yes. Okay. If you do you have notes? I do. Good night. Okay, here we go. I love it. I love it. Okay, so this is called the trilemma. The trilemma asks the question, it, it puts together three parts of God's character and it defines them as irreconcilable. This was, as Nietzsche once said, this is gonna be the grand nail in the coffin of Christianity. The fact that you can't rectify these things. Ironically, uh, modern day uh, atheistic apologists who argue against Christianity don't use this conversation anymore. It's... Yeah. Yeah, the question was, if God is good, why does he allow all these evil things to happen? That's essentially the question, okay? So if God is good, the trilemma exists like this. God is all-powerful. These are characteristics of God. We see this in Scripture. But the second part of the trilemma is God is all-knowing. He's also all-loving, so he's omniscient and omnibenevolent. And the third part of the trilemma is there is evil in the world. So the question becomes, um, and it begs the question, it's actually a, it's a straw man argumentation, it actually begs the question, that atheists will ask me, that they'll ask me then, is God impotent to stop the evil, even though he wants to? Because his, his love would say he would stop the evil, but maybe he's impotent to stop it. He'd love to, but he just can't. Or maybe he's powerful enough to stop it, but he's not really all loving because he doesn't want to stop it. So the idea is, therefore, there is no God. Because God would have to be a maximally great being. He'd have to be the maximally best version of every single characteristic, which means he'd have to be maximally loving. He couldn't be a little bit loving. He couldn't be in a couple places at a time. He'd have to be where? Everywhere at once. He couldn't be a little bit powerful. He'd have to be all-powerful. He wouldn't be a little bit loving. He'd be, all, he'd be the maximally great being. So the argument then is, which one, <coughs> which one of these characteristics does he not have? Is he not powerful enough to stop it, or does he not want to stop it? Either one of those is a deficiency of his character, therefore there is no God. It's an intriguing question. The problem is, a guy named Alvin Plantinga, after writing a free will defense, has basically euthanized this conversation in modern day apologetics. No one talks about this anymore. People who are actually learned in the field. Atheists don't bring this up anymore, and Christians don't really have to defend it unless people haven't heard the question before or they haven't heard the answer to it before. The answer to it goes like this. Uh, the, 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 there's two different problems people see. One is called the logical problem of evil, 
which means a God can't exist while there is evil. To that, whenever someone makes a truth claim, the burden of proof is on them. So you ask them, when you say God can't exist while evil exists, my question would be, why not? Let me ask you that question. Why not? The logical problem of evil. Why can't God and evil both exist? Right. Well, if God is in this world and God and evil do coexist, so how do we make sense of it? Let me, let me ask you another question that I think is important for us to answer as believers. And it might upset the senses at first, but, but let me get to the root of it before you scream and cry and take off your clothes and run out of the theater, okay? <clears throat> Probably shouldn't do that, period. But um, can God do whatever he wants? Okay. I love the boldness. Who is my bold man over there? Okay. Is God limited in what he can do? Can he do that? Which one is it? The question is a fallacy in of itself. The question is a fallacy not in the fact that it's fallacious, but in the fact that you're asking it of a maximally great being. Which a maximally great being, would he participate in nonsense? No. So, can God do something absurd? No, he can't. Is God limited in what he can do? Yes, he is. Can God, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing him right now, can God wake up tomorrow and decide that rape is okay? God can't declare a divine decree that all of a sudden rape is okay now? Who said no? Who said no? No. Anyone want to argue the affirmative against that guy? Anyone want to be on the, yeah, I think rape is... Come, it's, a, it's a flexible topic. <laughs> These are, this is a real conversation. I'm not trying to make pithy of this. I'm, t- I'm asking you a question, which is, is God able to do that? No, he's not. Why? Let me ask you another question. This is another one. That's, when Jesus was here for 33 years, could he have sinned? I love this. I love this. I love the waves of contrary. No. But also, yes. Let me answer this question for you. The argument for whether or not God, whether or not Jesus could sin is called the impeccability of the character of the Christ. Here's what this means. It means that God is absolutely limited in what he can do because part of his character limits himself. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
That's what the scriptures say. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not move about like shifting shadows. He, is not some, he, he doesn't wake up tomorrow and change his idea on murder and theft and adultery and, and rape. He doesn't change. Why? He is consistent in his character. God always, always, always acts in relationship to the nature of his character. Always. So is God limited in what he can do? 100%. God is not going to come down here and pillage a, pillage a group of people and take all their money, punch them in the face and go, you suck. He can't because he is a maximally great being. He is perfectly moral. He can't do those things. So when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, he's not really being tempted to sin as much as he is being tempted to overthrow the divine will and the, the revealed, revealed will of God for the person of Jesus, right? Turn these stones to bread. Is that a sin? No. Uh, throw yourself off this thing and the angels are going to catch you. Would they have caught him? 100%. He's God in the flesh. Bow down to me and all these mountains will be yours. And that could be considered idolatry. But who actually owns all of them ultimately? Who is the ultimate authority of heaven and earth? God. Now for a moment, Satan is able to live in his dominion. But God is the ultimate owner of all those things. Jesus can't sin. The reason that's so important for us as believers is that when you approach the throne of God, the, the confidence that we have that Hebrews chapter 4 talks about, it says, therefore we can approach, approach God's throne of grace with confidence. What gives us confidence? Why do we have faith that we can approach God's throne of grace? Because we know that we're never going to approach God's throne of grace and he's going to go, forget you. I'm tired, of, I'm tired of this forgiveness junk. I'm done with it. Why can we... Why can we look at the scriptures and say that God is, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, therefore, beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and even that love is born of God and knows God. If you do not love, you don't know God, because God is love. You realize we don't have, like, revisions of the text. We don't have, like, the Bible, version 2. God is kind of love now. His character is always, God is always love. He is always justice. He is always truth. He is, John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's always consistent in his character. When we do good things, we choose to do something inside the character of God. We choose to respond as God would, as the image bearers of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. But we don't do so out of our nature. Do we have a nature of sinlessness? Nope. Our nature is stained by the mutiny of our parents, our great-great-great-grandfather, Adam. We are born with what we call original sin. We are by nature Romans 8, 10 through 13. We are born enemies of God naturalistically as sinners. There was no one good. There was no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3, verse 10. No one can do good. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We are by nature stained. Into my mother's womb I was conceived. Into iniquity I was born. So when we choose to go out and, and, and act in selflessness or we, or we act in generosity, we are actually opposing our natural state. What does it say in the book of Romans chapter seven? The great apostle Paul says, I know the good that I'm supposed to do, but that's the stuff that I don't do. There's other stuff that I know I'm not supposed to do, and that's the stuff that I keep by myself doing. So if I know what I'm supposed to do, why don't I do those things? If I know I'm not supposed to do these things, why do I keep doing these things? How does he finish that whole section? Does anyone know? He asks the question, who can rescue me from my body of death? Paul is, he is talking about the, the eye in the storm of the believer, that we are by nature broken and sinful, 
And yet we've been given this picture of what resurrection life in Jesus looks like. And so we move towards it. How do we do it? it? Paul says, we beat our body and make it our slave that we might be found in Christ. For I consider the present sufferings are not worthy of the surpassing glory that is found in Christ Jesus. So why do we pursue obedience? Because we're going against our nature. Because our nature is to be enemies of God. Had any of you guys ever sat down a two-year-old and been like, did you see them take your, hit him. I got five kids, right? Seven, oh my gosh. Seven, six, four, two, and one. Seven, six, four, two, and one. My wife committed suicide last year, if you guys don't know my story. In the middle of all this, you have to answer these questions all the time. What do we do with the character of God? Why do I get to rest certain in the fact that my wife is saved and in heaven? Because when God says in the book of Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, for if you call on the name of the Lord, for those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. No conditional, no parenthetical, no if buts. That's why you, no matter where you come from or how much you've done or who you've slept with or what your history is, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Do you want to know why? Because the character of God is always the same. Always. It's the beauty of the Christian scriptures. You will never approach God in repentance and contrition and find a God that goes, I'm over you. This is the beauty. I'm not going to get emotional. I'm already emotional. <clears throat> so why do we have confidence that our God exists alongside of the evil in our world? Because God is limited in what he can do. He's limited. The question begs two things that are really important. Number one, when you ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, you've made a, an adjectival assumption on people. And that is that we are what? Good. Has anyone good ever existed? Just the one. So if your question of the problem of evil is actually the miraculous, spontaneous, ridiculous grace of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Great question. Why do bad things happen to good people? It only happened once, and that guy volunteered. There are no good people. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. We fight against our bad nature to even be here right now. We are, we are the scripture says, and it says, even if you do good things, even the good things you do in front of a holy and perfect God are like a pile of dirty rags. You know what the scripture talks about when it uses the idea of pile of dirty rags? It's used menstrual rags. That's what the text actually says. Every mission trip you've gone on outside of the Holy Spirit, everything that you've done, every good thing, that, every good deed you've ever done, every time you've held the door open for someone, if you are not in Christ, you are putting up a pile of dirty used menstrual rags in front of God and asking him to applaud you for it. There is no one righteous, not even one. We're not good people, <laughs> Secondly, to understand, why would, a, why would God allow this to happen? Why would he do that? Remember, when God created mankind, he made us in perfect communion with him. We rebelled against him, and we brought mutiny. We brought sin into the world. And so the pain and the suicide and the brokenness of our world is us welcoming in the worship of man over the worship of God. The sound of sirens and gunshots and mass murders and shootings, that is the music and the, it's the worship music of man worshiping his God, which is himself. This is, this is the noise of the worship of, of mankind. 
the question assumes that God can make a world in which he is glorified, mankind enjoys, this is the chief end of man from the confession, right? The catechism. That man exists to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We would think then that God can uphold those two things while making a world in which there was no sin and no pain and no suffering in any of those things, and it's not possible. There seems to be a, a tension there. Why do you think Jesus had to die on the cross? You think if there was another way or another world that God could have made to reap his glory and to experience what he was owed and for us to enjoy and glorify him forever that he would have gone a different route than the murder of his own son? I think he would have. God doesn't look down at the world and go, let's try the murder of my son version. It's because it was the only way. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays out to the the Father and he says, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. What's God's response? No, there's not. Let me ask you another question. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to know him forever, and John chapter 17 says that true paradise is this, to know the Father and the one who who he has sent. Does God want all people to come into a relationship with him? Does the Bible tell us? It does. God's desire is that all men would be saved. Is God a God of justice? Yes. Does he delight in the showing of mercy? Yes. The Bible tells us our God is a God of of justice, but he delights in the showing of mercy. He wants to show mercy. So we simply ask the question then, in terms of all these things, what if... What if God in his divine sovereignty understands that evil on planet earth is so perfectly set that the most amount of people would come to faith in him? What if, if evil was more intense, it would be so chaotic and any understanding of God or there being some kind of divine being who wants to intervene in mankind would be completely unknowable by by mankind and no one would come into relationship with him? Conversely, what if there was so much less evil in the world that we lived in this utopian society where the idea of us being sinful or broken or needing help or resurrection or anything else like that was completely absurd in in and of itself as the book of Corinthians says, foolishness to those who are perishing. What if God has set the dial of evil or permitted evil so perfectly that the most amount of us would go, frick, this world is messed up. Man, I need Jesus. I see the suffering around me and the most amount of people are reaped for the kingdom of God possible. These are all great theological questions. The issue is there is no one that can sit and checkmate and say, if there is evil and there is God, those are indefinable, those are mutually exclusive, therefore there is no God. It's completely done away with. No one has that conversation anymore. So we have to ask them the the question of the character of God. And that's where those other questions come in. Does that help answer your question? Good. We have five minutes. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Um, okay, so I, my theology doesn't dictate this. She asked, if, if we are homo sapiens, we've got homo erectus, we've got Neanderthals, all those other things, how do you rectify those two things with scripture? And I would, I would first of all say that um, the fossil record is, it, and it's not my theological perspective. Um, those are technically non-overlapping magisterial authorities, what you just talked about. The idea that science is able to talk about forensic evidence of the past 
actually jumps outside the bounds of what science is limited to. Science is limited to what's observable, measurable, and repeatable. Finding different skeletal systems and seeing the transformation over time and adaptation on a microevolutionary level is not the same thing then as verifying that I came from goo via the zoo. That doesn't verify macroevolution. Secondly, the presence of other homo sapien-like species the question would really come down to, are they souls or are they creatures alongside of a dog or a cat? Are dogs and cats saved? No. Are they going to be in heaven? Yes, but probably not your cat, right? They'll be cats, but not your cat. Maybe not cats at all because they're the worst, but dogs certainly um, because they don't have a soul. The uniqueness of mankind, and this is a question that you're asking, what, does, what qualifies as mankind? We can, at one hand, I would probably lean more towards this end, where I would, I would sit with you in the fossil record and with all the studying and information and sit on the majority aspect of scientists who would argue that the presence of those things are, is absolutely unverifiable information. Secondly, I will assert and give of the scientists the ability to say there actually was Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, and they were different species I'll assert and I'll say, you can have it this time. And this time when I give it to you, I would ask the simple question, in what, what makes mankind unique in the Garden of Eden is that God made all the other animals, he forms Adam out of the dust, and then it says he breathes into life and gives him a soul. So are Neanderthals soul-filled people? I don't know, maybe. Were Homo erectus soul-filled people? Or are they on the same lines as an ape, as a baboon, as a tree stump, and they're all alive, but they are not soul-bearing creatures. Because Jesus came, first book of John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, he was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. He then does what? The word skeneo, the word became flesh. It tabernacled among us. Why did God become man? To save man. So we have to ask the question, what then is defined as man? Is Neanderthal defined as man? Is Homo erectus defined as man? And in this assumption, I'm giving you the, the preponderance of those species. I'm giving them to you. I would say then that they would be soulless, even if intellectual, they would be soulless, unsaved, irredeemable groups of people that, were, that would not be more than their cousins, the apes or the baboons or a banana. Um, which actually shares more DNA than you would believe with humanity. Uh, so that would be, there's a two-part answer to that question, and the Bible doesn't trip on that at all, because at one point it can say, either all of them had a soul, therefore they all need to be saved, and through a process of adaptation they became mankind, but they would all be able to understand and respond to the grace of, of the cross that was coming, or only one of them would, which is what we'd see as modern mankind, and there's a whole other group of people who would say, this is not science. To look at different skulls and then to make leaps in logic. That's what I said before. Every group makes science claims. And if science is, is, is limited to what's observable, measurable, and repeatable, when we do archaeology, we're not doing the same kind of science that we're doing when we're finding out how hot water has to be to boil. That's evidential science. We're doing forensic science. This is what you do when you get to show up to a crime scene. We collect all the evidence, then we make our best guess. The scientific community has done a real disservice because they've taken all of these lines of evidence that look like proof, and they've said that these things are actual, rational, this is what exactly happened, and it's just not true. Darwinism, read modern scientific journals, Darwinism is getting ripped apart right now. 
It's just getting mutilated in every scholarly journal, journally, or every peer-reviewed scientific journal article. It's getting killed. But are you guys taught that in your school? Are you taught anything opposing that? Are you taught any other theory? When Darwin questioned his own theory, what did he say was the best evidence against his theory? Anyone know? The fossil record. He said, my theory holds up unless you could ever prove a point at which fully formed species came into existence or in which you could verify that a, there would be what we would, we would call a, um, if there was the presence of a, an organism that wouldn't work if it was any less complex, okay? Like a flagella in your body. The flagella in your body that is able to carry information inside of your cells, the reason that you exist is because of these little things that got this little motor. There's like 45 parts to this thing. And if one part is missing, it no longer carries out its function. And there is no life. Therefore, irreducibly complex micromachines is what it's called. I could not come up with it. Irreducibly complex micromachines. That means the evolutionary record would necessitate that in one generation, 47 parts of the flagella had to pop into existence in order for any part of mankind or carbon-based organisms to exist. That can't happen. The, the idea of gradual mutation shows that one after another. So this is what we're figuring out. It was simple when we were able to only look at bones and records and go, my arm bone looks like that monkey's arm bone. Fantastic. That can, one, go, oh, common ancestry. You know what else that can prove? Common designer. Like when you look at Picasso's paintings, how do you know Picasso drew the eye the way that he did? Because he always draws eyes the same way. Do you want to know why? Because his eyes worked, right? When you get a new Tesla, a brand new 2024 Tesla, are you going to put tires in your car? Yeah, because it's, it's the idea is the author and the designer did a good job, so you're going to keep using the same thing over and over again. It would make no sense for you to go, this one's going to have tires. Now I've got to reinvent the wheel for this one over here. So common ancestry and common design, all of the homologous structures both prove each other. It makes no sense in the scientific community. So that's a long answer to a short question. They were either need to be saved because they would have souls. They either don't have souls or that, they, that the idea that they were somehow a transitive species um, needs to be verified further. I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. I know that some of y'all still have questions and stuff like that that weren't able to get them in. Um, so I'll be here for a few minutes if you want to talk, but I want you to make sure you get out on time. So enjoy your day.